This podcast is sponsored by the American Society for Information Science and Technology. Since 1937, ACIST has been the Society for Information Professionals, leading the search for new and better theories, techniques, and technologies to improve access to information. By the IA Summit. This year, your peers and industry experts spoke about how topics such as social networking, gaming, patterns, tagging, taxonomies, and a wide range of IA tools and techniques help users experience information. And by Boxes and Arrows. Since 2001, Boxes and Arrows has been a peer-written journal promoting contributors who want to provoke thinking, push limits, and teach a few things along the way. For more events happening all over the world, be sure and check out events.boxesandarrows.com. A fighter pilot and military strategist, the late John Boyd is considered by some to be the most important strategic thinker since Sun Tzu. Matthew Milan talks about what Boyd's thinking can teach us about how to understand, interpret, and design for human decision-making. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers. Thanks for coming. I uh, really appreciate uh, coming to something that seems maybe as abstract or as reaching as this. Uh, this is the Information Architect and the Fighter Pilot. Uh, and Friday for me was a Howard Hughes kind of day uh, where I uh, sat down and realized that I hated my presentation. Uh, so in my hotel room... Uh, no tissue, no weird stuff like that, but I read it. The presentation uh, from scratch, storyboarding on the window. What's that? I, I really, at about 3 in the afternoon, I realized how far down the rabbit hole I was going, and I kind of pulled back. Um, so warning here. Uh, there are no wireframes, there are no clear answers, and there are no happy endings to this presentation. Uh, this is a peer of mine, creative director in the uh, agency I work for. Um, He's heckling me on Twitter. This makes me feel really good, actually, because in a lot of ways, this presentation is about survival. And Richard Dawkins says, we're survival machines. So if I can handle the heckling on Twitter, I can probably handle this. John Boyd, um, he also talks about survival. And let me just see here. Apologies. Maybe I'll have to stand up here and babysit this. He says, he who can handle the quickest rate of change survives. This is the purpose of this talk. Uh, I want to explore how the work of John Boyd, who we'll talk about, can help us to think about the practice and discipline of information architecture. All these people walking in later have missed the warning, so they're on their own. Um, three parts to this talk. We learn about John Boyd. Uh, we're going to talk about learning from John Boyd. And we're going to talk about plating the bird. So starting with John Boyd. A uh, number of themes in his work. Conflict is a theme in his work. Emergence is a theme in his work. Destruction is a theme in his work. Synthesis, agility, adaptation, and novelty. Uh, this is a really interesting mixed bag, but um, as we go through, I hope you'll start to understand that there's a very strong relationship about these and also the way that John talked about these things. And sadly, I've had to leave out all his other but I think these are the ones that, in the short term, are valuable for us. So let's talk about the evolution of Boyd. Uh, Boyd went through three stages in his life. Uh, he was a fighter pilot. Uh, then he went back and got his master's degree in industrial engineering. Uh, and then he was uh, the rock in the shoe of everybody at the Pentagon. So the three stages in his life, the fighter pilot, the fighter mafia, and then Genghis John. So we'll start with the fighter pilot first, because we like stuff in chronological order. So Boyd first came to prominence um, 
in the 50s, he was known as 42nd Boyd. Uh, he had a bet that anybody could start out flying behind him in a jet fighter, and within 40 seconds, he could be behind them. Um, he had a $20 bet on this, which back in the day was quite a uh, lot of money. Um, and how he did this uh, was he had a trick, uh, and the trick was plating the bird. And what that meant was when someone else was following him, he would put his hands on the stick, put his elbows on the side of the cockpit, and pull back as hard as he could, causing the plane to fly flat through the air. Uh, you've kind of seen it in Top Gun. What that allowed him to do is actually startle the opponent. The opponent would fly by him, and he'd be in a position of advantage. What's interesting when we start to look at John Boyd and his relationship with information architecture, if there is one, and I'm suggesting there is, uh, is that as part of his uh, work as an instructor fighter pilot, um, he created what I would say is one of the world's first pattern libraries. Uh, he cataloged every single possible um, air combat maneuver that existed at the time. Uh, it's now used, once this was declassified, it's now used by every single um, Air Force in the world. And no one has added a new pattern since he did it. So a lot of his work was initially about seeing patterns, and we can also see in our work a focus on seeing patterns. Next stage in his life was Fighter Mafia. The first thing that came out of his um, experiences in graduate school uh, and afterwards was the idea of fast transients. He wondered uh, how certain fighter pilots were better than others even when they had substandard planes. He realized it was not the plane. It was the way that people thought about doing things, and not necessarily the plane being faster, but the plane being able to make quicker movements. The combination of a plane being able to make quicker movements and the brain being able to make quicker movements brought him this concept of fast transients. And through his research, and which included him stealing a million dollars computer time uh, from an Air Force base in the mid-1960s, which is a lot of time he almost got kicked out of the military, he developed something called um, EM theory, or energy maneuverability theory. Uh, you may not know this theory explicitly, but you certainly know the military aircraft programs that were developed out of it. He's known as the father of the F-16, also the F-15, um, and what he did was he was able to take theory, um, turn it into a model that allowed you to create the best possible performance for an aircraft, um, and allow you to pick the types of uh, experience you were going to get from that aircraft. So one of the things he started doing is he started uh, creating practice from his theory. His theory was not just um, a bunch of crazy ideas. It was actually making changes. Uh, and in the military-industrial complex in the 1960s, uh, he started to become very unpopular. Um, if you look at it uh, from one perspective, the way he influenced the procurement process was essentially as if IAs own the RFP process. We certainly don't right now. Uh, but that's how far he got. And that wasn't the end. So once he, uh, once he kind of retired uh, in the early 1970s, they're like, you have two choices. You can either go through the standard military track, more and more promotions, um, more and more stars, or you can get out and be a contractor. Uh, he was fundamentally very concerned that there was something wrong with the military, uh, the way that they thought about waging war, about surviving, about providing value for uh, the country. Uh, and so he decided to become the contractor and deliberately stay in a position where uh, he could not um, be told what to do, but instead could influence what was done. So he spent the next 15, 20 years slumming at the Pentagon, uh, hiding out in offices, generally making people's lives uh, pretty difficult. And during this time, 
uh, he started reading voraciously. Uh, and not just books on military history, but uh, pretty much everything was out there, everything from uh, uh, Kuhn to Heidegger, um, right across the map. So he was, he was really starting to look at things in a different way and starting to, uh, in a scary way, build a theory of everything about how to survive um, in, a, in, a, in a complex environment. What he was doing, uh, and people didn't realize this at first, but he was fundamentally changing the game and changing the nature of warfare. And now it's recognized um, by people who know his work uh, that he is essentially the most important strategic leader of the last 2,000 years, going back to Sun Tzu. In fact, his theory is considered to be uh, the follow-up to Sun Tzu. Um, and where Sun Tzu was a bunch of rules, Boyd is a bunch of rationale and thinking around the rules. So he's actually taken Sun Tzu further. One of the core parts of his thinking as he started to develop um, his theories, and we'll get to his theories in a little bit, was the idea of synthesis. I mean, we're all familiar with the idea of synthesis. Uh, at least that's one of the things we're supposed to do. Um, but he approached the idea a little bit differently. He saw synthesis as one of a number of things um, that people needed to do in order to be good decision makers in complex environments. And so he'd, he'd actually put people through a little situation, a little questionnaire. Uh, he'd say, um, take a pair of skis, take a bicycle, take an outboard motor, and take a tank. And now deconstruct those into all their component parts. What do you get? So people couldn't get anything. The answer he wanted was this, a snowmobile, right? Why would you want a snowmobile? It's not necessarily about the snowmobile itself. It's about the process of creating the snowmobile and the mobile and the value it provides. And uh, we'll get back to the snowmobile later, but I want you to think about synthesis and the value that you get out of it in work. So as he began to dig deeper and deeper and deeper into his theory of everything, uh, he started looking uh, back into recent military history and saying, you know, where are examples of fast transients? Where are examples of um, destruction and creation happening in complex environments that uh, breed survival and success? Um, Blitzkrieg was one of them, and he was actually able to uh, dig into Blitzkrieg, uh, pull out the core ideas, and incorporate them into his theory. Um, it's totally another talk, but um, the Toyota production system Blitzkrieg and John Boyd's theories are all um, brothers, so to speak. And if you're actually looking for an example of his theories being used in the business context, you need to look no further than the Toyota production system. It is a direct example of what he's doing or what he wanted to do. So the end of his time as uh, Genghis John was, um, again, a position of influence, um, especially from behind the scenes. Um, but with a lot of results, uh, two things happened that were very significant. First, um, as his theories uh, became known within the community, they began to be adopted by important people. Uh, the U.S. Marine Corps bases all of their fighting strategy, their war fighting approaches, on Boyd's theories. Uh, everything that Marines do is based fundamentally on his work. And it's not um, you stand here, you stand here, you stand here. It's about being in a complex environment, understanding how to have a command and control structure that is both top-down and bottom-up. No matter where people are and how disconnected they are, they are still able to carry out the overall vision um, at a tactical level, cut off from the leadership, they can still deliver the strategy. Um, another example of the success of his theories, uh, the first Gulf War. You remember the Americans uh, came in, uh, took care of things very quickly, um, directly informed by Boyd's um, theories, and in fact, um, when the first war was happening, this a few years before he died, 
um, people started phoning up and saying, you hear these generals on TV, they're using your language. I mean, that's something that's very valuable. No one ever referenced Boyd, but everybody used his language. And I think that's one of the things that we maybe look for but don't have yet, is the people that we want to influence, they're not using our language. So, all these themes, implicit in his evolution as a person, conflict, emergent, instruction, synthesis, agility, adaptation, and novelty, the idea of things being different and how difference causes the system to change. And this affected him and affected his theory. We're going to talk about Boyd's theory now. Um, how are we doing for time, by the way? Good. Good. So let's talk about um, Boyd's theory. Boyd never wrote a book. Um, so if you want to go out and read John Boyd's book, there's a couple books out there by people who slog through his work afterwards. Um, but they're all books. There's a bunch of briefs. Um, he used to do slideshows, um, the traditional type, not the PowerPoint type. Um, and he used to have conversations. Uh, this is a chronological order of some of his important ones. Destruction and creation, patterns of conflict, organic design for command and control, strategic game of question mark and question mark, revelation, discourse on winning and losing, the conceptual spiral and the essence of winning and losing. And as he progressed over this 20-year period, creating these briefs and actually briefing people, which in some cases his briefs would run 9 to 10 hours, um, which is pretty intense. You're, you're getting the 30-minute version. Um, as he developed these briefs, he developed... Uh, a higher and higher level perspective, uh, which allowed him to take his really low-level ideas, things like fast transients, and bubble them up to a very, very high-level idea of how does an organization achieve survival, or how does a culture achieve survival, um, and taking care of all the layers in between. So by the end of his uh, time doing this, um, he was working at a very abstract and almost holistic level. The outcome of all of uh, his work by most people is seen as this. So we're going to talk about this. Uh, this is the ODA or OODA loop, depending on how you want to pronounce it. If you're from Canada or the United States, you may pronounce it a little bit differently. Um, but uh, this, in a lot of ways, is uh, central to his thinking and something that's really valuable to understand. But I just want to be clear, it's not the only piece of his thinking that is valuable to us. Halfway? Great. So, observe, orient, decide, and act. These are the four components of the loop. This is how most people see the loop. People hear about the Oda loop, oh, let's apply it to business, let's apply it to something else. Observe, orient, decide, and act. It's great on a PowerPoint slide. This is how he saw the loop. Fundamentally very different. Much more complex, much more nuanced. What's that? No, no, no. <laughs> yes. Yes, rock on. <laughs> yeah, you, you, missed the, you missed the Fight Club type flash. In the <laughs> um, so observations are not you just looking at things. Observations are unfolding circumstances feeding in, unfolding interactions with the environment. Your implicit can, guidance and control. Orientation is more than you just thinking about something basic. It's also your cultural traditions, your genetic heritage, how comfortable you are with analysis and synthesis, previous information, uh, previous experience, new information, all feeding forward to a decision or a hypothesis, and then the idea of action or testing. Um, and Boyd suggested that to use the loop effectively, you needed to get inside your opponent's loop. So you had to go through this process more quickly, and this is where the idea of the fighter pilot with the poor plane could take advantage of the fighter pilot with the good plane. It had nothing to do with the plane. It had to do with how quickly you went through this. Businesses that are adopting his theories 
are thinking like this. The smart ones are thinking like this, and they're understanding how do we actually go through this process so that we can make faster decisions. It's not even about making better decisions, it's about making faster decisions, because if you take the time to make a better decision, and somebody else makes a faster decision, they will be ahead of you. And by the time you've made two decisions and they've made five, you're making your decisions based on a space that they were in three decisions ago. You're not anywhere close to them. They, are in, they, are, they, have, they have advantage with you. And I think there's actually something to learn about this and how we design environments for individuals and for users. Um, we need to consider that people may need some type of thinking um, built into what we create that may help them with this. We need to consider what are people's decision-making processes and are we feeding people the right information so that they can make timely decisions, decisions that are not maybe the smartest, but the best. So it's more than a way of just fast looping. It's a way of thinking about survival and success, both the OTA loop and his theories in general. Um, one of the things he talks about a lot is destruction and creation. I'm going to gloss this over here just because don't have a lot of time, but it's really the idea of breaking things down and building them up, analysis and synthesis, deduction, induction. He also talks about Qi and Chang a lot, and this is something I think that we as information architects don't do well, but need to do well, especially when we're creating things. So Chang is the orthodox idea. It's the expected idea. From a strategic perspective, it's um, the idea that Sun Tzu brought out. This is his language of attacking the enemy head on. When you provide an experience, providing people what they expect. The Qi is the unorthodox, the unexpected. Uh, this is, I believe, there was the talk by uh, Brandon uh, yesterday on the long wow and constantly delighting and surprising people. Part of that is the unorthodox, the unexpected. You need to design that um, into your experiences. You need to design that as part of what you're creating. And this leads into the idea of novelty. Um, why would novelty be important? I mean, as information architects, we think about the fact that, oh, it's novel, it's cute, it's not really valuable. Uh, understanding novelty allows us to create novelty. If we don't understand why something is novel, why it's different, and how the difference changes the inputs into the loop, we can't actually figure out how to design for it because novelty produces change. We're, when you're looking to create something that changes things, you have to understand the nature of novelty and how the differences that novelty create allow you to create that change. So, Boyd left his theory deliberately incomplete. Uh, and it's because of how he approached sharing information. Boyd was all about briefing, as I mentioned earlier. Um, and specifically, it was a discourse to make the audience think. We'll talk about the snowmobile again. So, what was the value of the snowmobile? Well, when he'd ask the snowmobile question, he'd follow up with this. He'd say, a loser is someone who cannot build snowmobiles when facing uncertainty and unpredictable change. A winner is someone who can build snowmobiles and employ them in an appropriate fashion when facing uncertainty and unpredictable change. So it's not about building a snowmobile. It's about being able to go through analysis, synthesis, destruction, creation process faster so that you can come out with something that you can then use in an appropriate fashion. It's not about creation. It's about creation and use. So by going through this, he was having a discourse with the audience to make them think. We'll talk very quickly about learning from Boyd um, and talk a little bit about what you might want to consider when you're designing experiences. Again, I promise no wireframes, um, no screenshots. We're just going to talk a little bit. Um, organic design and emergence. Emergence is a really popular term. We talk about it a lot. It's hot right now. Um, but I think you need to understand emergence from the perspective of Boyd's OTA loop. And you need to understand emergence from the perspective of novelty and the change and the difference it creates. 
when you're creating something, you need to understand destruction and creation. IAs are very good at creating things. Autonomies, wireframes, navigation, mental models. We seem to be great at this. Let's talk about adaptation fast transients. Increasingly, we're seeing environments being built and not being used the way they're expected. Twitter is a great example where what it was originally intended for and what it's used now has changed. Um, one of the reasons why I think Twitter is successful and, and many other pieces of applications are is because Twitter is something where the people who are making it can go through periods of fast transients. You need to make a change on Twitter, you make it live. People complain, you change it. We'll talk a little bit about novelty and change. I think these are key to understand um, and at least think about from a design perspective. As an information architect, how are you leveraging novelty? How are you understanding that it creates difference? How are you understanding how that difference influences both your future designs and the experiences of people you're creating the experience, creating the for? Let's talk about Qi and Chang again. I think it's very important for us to understand that, yes, it's great to create that uh, primary and secondary navigation so that people can go where they're going, but we also need to think about the Qi. What is the difference? What is the real uh, unspoken value? What is the surprise? What is the novelty coming back to um, changing things? And I believe, as information architects, we need to start thinking about this. Um, and I don't think we need to start thinking about this and say every time we go to design a user interaction, pull out this. I would hate to see us change scenario design into something like this, where it's a checkbox. I've done every single little piece of the satanic star uh, in the OODA loop. The Boyd uh, is referred to as the first postmodern strategist. Um, in addition to reading all the military people in the bottom, he was also reading a lot of postmodernist thinkers in the 60s and 70s, and it's widely recognized that they affected his worldview. Um, and what he took away from that was uh, postmodernism was trying to uh, proliferate discourses without trying to fit them into a permanent grid. Talk about postmodern IA. Is IA a postmodernist discipline? Tell me if you think that this might explain IA, and not just your daily work, but all the people in this room. Complexity, contradiction, ambiguity, diversity. How many people in here are library science majors? How many people are not? How many people are HCI background, usability? There's a lot of diversity here. It's also about interconnectedness. All the people in the room, diverse, but here, and so again, it's the idea of trying to proliferate discourses without trying to fit them into a permanent grid. Um, January 22nd, 2002. Anybody remember that date? Probably not. I didn't until I was Googling. Uh, Peter Morville wrote this post on postmodern IA. Um, people have been talking about this, or actually not talking about it, for about six years. Um, he even got to quote William Gibson, uh, which, is, which is great. I love that quote. Um, but he even identified some pieces of postmodern innovation architecture, as he called it, emergence, adaptation, distribution. So, you know, he was going along the same lines as Boyd. My question is, are we closer to Boyd than we think? So, this is the final part of the presentation, plating the bird. Um, and for those of you who want to bug out, you still can. So, let's come back to Boyd's assertion, and I think this actually sums up his life's work quite nicely. He, can, he who can handle the quickest rate of change survives. How many Canadians in the room? Okay. So you'll know the story of the Avro Arrow, uh, which is 
uh, very painful but very touching story. Uh, in the 1950s, Canada actually had um, a military-industrial complex, too, uh, and uh, we had some very talented people uh, working uh, on military aircraft. The Avro era was a Mach 2 interceptor, uh, generally considered to be about five years ahead of its time in terms of how it uh, did things. Um, super high performance, did everything you'd possibly want. Um, it was canceled, and when it was canceled, it was cut up so that people couldn't see what the value was. People thought there were moles, there were spies, and the organizations building the plane. This was very painful for Canadians. We never recovered uh, in a lot of different ways, including the fact that the brain trust of this uh, immediately picked up and went to the Apollo program. So the brain trust went somewhere, but the practice, the creation of the airplane, was dead. So what killed the Avro Arrow? Capability, uh, but no adaptation and changing environment. That's what Boyd would say. Let's look 10 years in the future in 2018. How many people can do that? Yes? Good. What killed information architecture? This is what I think. Capability, but no adaptation in a changing environment. That's what Boyd would say. I believe that information architecture is half a discipline. This slide is for you guys. I really do. I really... <laughs> I really do believe that we overthink the damn thing, which is pretty um, ridiculous for me to say after talking about John Boyd for 30 minutes. But I think fundamentally it comes down to this. We are great at this. We suck at this. We talk about tagging. We talk about things like that. Uh, we are talking about emergent environments. We are not in them. We are not doing the kind of work we know we should be doing. We are still exploring the edges. In IA terms, we're really good at this. We're really bad at this. I think we're too passive about unstructuring things. Uh, this will be the last Canadian reference, but I think we're honestly too Canadian. We're too afraid to uh, pick at stuff. But I think that we, as a practice, um, can adapt if we aren't living in the loop. I don't believe we're living in the loop right now. All the great changes in the web, in the way that we think about information, are happening in other fields. That's my personal opinion. We can't live in the loop and make those fast transients and make the decisions, not good or bad, just quickly until we're able to deconstruct because part of the analysis and synthesis piece is deconstruction. Boyd, towards the end of his life, uh, one of his briefings was called the conceptual spiral. Uh, and he talked about this spiral of ideas, exploration, thinking, learning, comprehending, unlearning, shaping, innovating, achieving, relearning, and adaptation. Um, he talked about this conceptual spiral generating insight, imagination, and initiative. Essentially, he called it a paradigm for survival and growth. I think we need our own conceptual spiral as a practice. Uh, we need to get inside the loop. I think we need to focus more on the discourse. I was talking with someone out in the hall uh, before this, and, uh, and we agreed that you know, there's lots of great conversations happening about information architecture, but not what it ought to be. We need to brief more. And I'm not talking about talking to each other. I'm talking about briefing our peers and other groups and other industries, our clients, our business leaders. Boyd specifically went out of his way not to talk to his peers, the people who agreed with him, the people who disagreed with him, the people that didn't understand. We need to get better at breaking things. How are we going to understand how to create things if we're not good at breaking them? And I think we need to embrace novelty. I am so sick and tired of seeing the same navigation approaches over and over and over. They work. 
they're not helping create change. And uh, you know, if you were in uh, Stephen Anderson's talk yesterday, we saw all kinds of great examples of what navigation can be. I think that's where we need to be going. We need to be embracing novelty, even at that level. We're not even talking strategy. We need to chi as well as cheng. We need to put things out there that are different. We need to understand what difference does and how to react to the difference and how to create better experiences based on the differences that we create. Boyd left his theory deliberately incomplete. Uh, he wanted a discourse with the community about what made a better strategy. He didn't have the answers. I think we should leave our theory incomplete too. It's not about defining what we do, it's about talking about it. So I've left this presentation deliberately incomplete. <laughs> So how'd I do for time? Perfect. So we've got uh, about 15 minutes to talk about uh, the different ideas that Matthew's been sharing with us. And I will uh, bring you the mic if you put up your hand. You could just say your name uh, and your question. Hi, I'm Kathy. Hi, Kathy. Um, my question is about destruction. Um, I was just trying to think about examples as to you know how we would be, you know, how we would embrace destruction in our design. So, would an example of that potentially be how something um, degrades gracefully over time? Or I mean, I guess I'm trying to think of a concrete example. It would be. It would actually be the process that you went through to understand how a good degradation process would happen. So the destruction would not be the creation of the, de the degradation process. It would be looking at what you've created and breaking that down into the pieces and understanding what it was made of in order to create that degradation process. So when I'm saying destruction, I'm saying we need to think more about that at all levels. Does that make sense? Yeah. I was just going to add that... Um, that in writing we call it killing your babies is a great way to think about it. Killing your babies? <laughs> kill, kill your darlings, excuse me. <laughs> uh, we've got someone over here too. I think it's uh, very interesting that you're mentioning uh, this sort of deconstructivist movement. And actually, uh, quite a few years ago in architecture, that, there was a really profound movement there. And, uh, you know, there was kind of bound within the philosophy of uh, Derrida and Heidegger, as you mentioned. Uh, you know, some of the architects that, even old school ones, such as Frank Gehry, yes. um, were part of that. And they had this uh, big exhibition at, in the, I believe it's the Museum of Modern Art in New York. And they exhibited all these architects that were considered part of this new deconstructivist movement. But uh, I wonder how that phenomena may, may play out with the whole notion of user experience and information architecture and kind of Breaking these, uh, breaking the structure, if you will, and uh, seeing how those pieces uh, may play out. So, I this is my personal opinion. I think the word that you use, movement, is very appropriate because I don't believe that the entire community needs to just turn around and start "quote unquote" breaking shit. Um, <laughs> that will be bad in the short term. But I do believe that we need we need a movement, or we need some movements um, within our community that are exploring those cases and exploring them seriously and having the best pieces come out. Because in a movement like that, you get a trickle-down effect of the best ideas and the best practices coming out. And that's what I don't see us doing right now. I see us 
Um, building our theory from reacting to what other people are doing rather than being in the loop and actually going through the process ourselves. We've got one over there. Chris, you better not be writing down a question. Evan. Um, I just want to say I'm Jenny, and I just wanted to ask, um, what do you think Bruce Lee would say about IA? What do I think Bruce Lee would see, say about IA? Uh, wow. <laughs> that, that's a great question. Um, uh, you know what? Uh, he'd probably just uh, kick it. You know? <laughs> I mean, I mean, if I, if I saw, now that I'm really going to get... Uh, this will probably haunt me forever. If I saw some poser come up and challenge me, you know, I just push him out of the way too. I think uh, I think that we need to uh, seriously think about our future. We need to start building some muscle for what we are going to be if we are going to be something. Go ahead, Chris. Yes. Um, I haven't done a lot of thinking about it yet, so I'm going to say that I don't have an answer. Uh, what I'd actually hope is that that's the kind of stuff that we start talking about more deeply. Because what I want to be very clear here is I don't think that we should adopt Boyd's theories and start using that as a model for what we do. What I do think is we can take away both at the design level and the uh, level of the practice, uh, level of the discipline, we can take away his ideas around destruction creation, discourse, et cetera, et cetera, in terms of how we create our own theory and then our own um, techniques and our own stuff out of it. Right now, we're still very much in the borrowing stage, I think, in terms of how we uh, create what we do and, the, and our value. I was just wondering how you thought some of these ideas fit with uh, conventions and patterns and things like that and how those tie together or... or they seem like they kind of oppose each other, so I was wondering if you could comment. I think if you look back to, um, to Boyd, it was an evolution. So he started, he started by recognizing that there were patterns and relationships, but his theory is not based on um, him expanding out the aerial tax study um, into something more complex. His, his theory was based on him starting to explore more deeply what the relationships were. So if there are relationships between patterns, how far does that go, right? And what kind of thinking do we need to do to start moving past something basic like patterns? Yes, we see relationships to how do we create something that allows us to understand relationships and then get prescriptive like you did with uh, energy maneuverability theory, design based on relationships as opposed to having to go back to a pattern library, having a single equation, for example, that will allow you to do that, not that I'm suggesting we do that, and then actually getting to a grander theory about what is the real value of information architecture. And that's the process he went through. So I don't think they're incongruent. I think they exist at different points in the evolution of a practice. Um, yes. Hi. Um, uh, so as you know, I've been obsessing over this kind of thing a lot. <laughs> a few um, of us. <laughs> and, uh, and you were nice enough to look at my closing thing for this week. To, you shouldn't to change an inch. Uh, well, I just I did a little. But um, anyway, but it is about a lot of this. And, and uh, as you know, so one of the things I've been thinking about a lot that I didn't get into in that is that... Uh, for the last couple of years, I've been a little embarrassed in a way at at how some other people who I, I think wrongly have sort of dissed information architecture, like Clay Shirky and people like that, because I don't think they totally get the practice. Yes. But but a lot of what they say is spot on mm -hmm. because these are the, they've been talking about things that we 
some of, well, and honestly, some people in the community have been trying to talk about, but that it's been hard to get people to listen for a few years. It's starting to come. It's starting to really come to the surface now. But it, does this sound like an example, like all the all the back and forth about like trees versus leaves and, and hierarchies, and if hierarchies are good or not, and all that stuff? Like it seems to me like one of those friction points where we're uh, some of the leaders in this community were were kind of having to kind of face up to the fact that they were on the wrong. They were banking on the wrong level of the pace layer diagram. You know, they were banking on the things that really are changing faster than they thought they were. That's uh, that would that would kind of be my feeling too. I mean, uh, I totally understand the analogies. The analogies um, that were used are very good for um, helping us understand where we are, where we are. Um, I don't think that it helps us understand uh, where we ought to be, and it really doesn't help us understand how we can be making the decisions that are moving us forward. Because right now, I think, if you were to compare that dialogue to the Oda Loop, that's us spinning around in the observed part forever and then trying to orient ourselves. And the orientation goes on for six, seven years, and then we don't make reaction. You see all these other things popping up. In 2002, the discussion was not so much about information architects not creating the great stuff like Flickr. Right? Now there is definitely that concern. Are we actually? relevant anymore. And I think part of it is we've been spinning too long about a lot of these things. These are really valuable things to talk about. Yeah. I totally agree. I totally agree. And that's, well, that's what I'm saying too, is that we need to be taking the thinking that we have, going out and briefing, and also listening to other people. So. Flickr example, it's actually noise process. I mean, have we had, as a community, a dialogue with those types of people in detail about the, the process that caused that stuff to emerge? Maybe, maybe not. Is it something that we do all the time? Not really. It's often we react to it. That's my belief. Um, sorry, yes, Chris. All right, let me see. I wrote down a question here for you. Uh, okay, I'm going to try to slip in two questions. Uh, uh, the first is, uh, do you think information architects should Architecture should be saved, uh, but answer that one second. I had a more detailed question about the OODA loop. Um, do you, how, how do you see sort of that being applied to, to what we do? I mean, is that something you do as part of your analysis and how a user reacts and how we position ourselves and our companies, you know, are we sort of battling for survival? You know, how does that decision making uh, analysis, like where does that play into the kind of design process? So, so we go through. For the bigger part of that question, I have a book recommendation for you that will do it way better than you than I ever could. Uh, for the shorter question, um, it's about understanding the second loop, not the first one, and using the second loop as part of our thinking process. A fighter pilot in the cockpit does not think about every single step of the loop going through it. That is just, it's a waste of time. It puts you behind. It's actually the worst way to use the loop. They just do it. And it's the process of actually taking that understanding, understanding what the inputs are, come, where they're coming from, taking them and making the decision. And that's what I believe we need to be doing, is taking the right inputs and making the decisions. And to the point of overthinking the thing, sometimes we overthink the thing. Doing the loop as an underlying piece of what we do is very good. Thinking about the loop is not so much. Does that answer your question? Well, I. Actually, wasn't trying to answer it too much because you're supposed to think about the. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you had a second question again. What was the second one? Uh, yes, I do. Very much so. Yes. No, it's not. 
uh, it's a good book. Um, the Logic of Failure is the book that Harry was wondering about. Yeah. And the book I'm recommending is called Certain to Win. Uh, and it's about the application of Boyd's theories to business. Uh, it's an excellent book. It's about 130 pages, so a very quick read. Uh, a lot of stuff you can actually pull into what you do. Works a little more on the organizational level than the product creation level. So we have time for probably two more questions, as long as they're relatively quick. So proximity. No promise of answers either. Waiting a long time. Um, yeah. So one of the um, one instance in, and it may have been Seattle. I'm not sure because they were a little more forward thinking. Um, one of the Frank Geary buildings went up close to the side of a highway, and what they found out very quickly was that every day um, during rush hour, the sun blinded all the you know everybody on the road, um, which is one of my general fears in moving forward with how do we break out of the modes that we know work, and more importantly, um, our more conservative clients, the modes that they know how work and. You know, would you suggest that what we do is every time we're working on a project, we also, on our own, on the side, you know, experiment off with something that we know we're not actually going to present? Um, so this is this is a good question because I'm actually involved in this uh, right now at work, and the person who was heckling me, he and I were actually in a conversation last week about this. Uh, we uh, work for an agency, and our client is a large financial services institution, um, and our goal is to put the novel, different stuff in front of them. They can decline it. But we're not going to go work on it off on the side. We will put interesting, challenging things in front of the stakeholders and say, here's the reason why we believe they should be there. Their prerogative is saying, no, we don't want to do it. And that actually may be a good business decision. But we're not going to deny those inputs. Because if we're working on them on the side, they're going to become marginalized. We're not going to be focusing on them. The ideas will evolve without the inputs that you need, which are the clients, the stakeholders, and possibly the users, if that makes sense. Yes? Uh, Hey, Olivia. Um, hey. Um, what I find most interesting about what you talked about, Boy, was that he brought um, practice from theory. Yes. Uh, so it was really action-oriented. Um, but you touched on something I find, uh, that I find very true, which is we overthink a lot. Yes. Um, so can you speak more about the overthinking part of IA, how we could potentially break from some of that? So, so I think like uh, sometimes IAs talk about themselves being designers, and sometimes IAs, and sometimes experienced designers. One of the things that I've learned from working with a large group of designers, um, the place I'm with right now, is that they create great stuff, um, but they don't think about it that much. They just do it. And to the novelty point, I think that um, intuition is something that we need to trust more. When I was talking about this with Harry in the hallway, uh, we need to trust our guts a little bit more. I have a completely different presentation um, talking specifically about that about the fact that one of the ways that you need to be insightful is to actually trust your gut. It's a, it's a core part of actually being an insightful person. If you don't trust your gut, and if you don't just do it, to borrow the Nike slogan, uh, you're going to end up behind the eight ball, uh, behind the loop. You're going to have somebody behind you um, taking advantage of you. And I think that uh, the overthinking part really hurts me. Go ahead. So, yeah, thanks, everybody. Uh, so.